0: Several years ago, I told you about that profound Saturday night when my middle son, James, came home and was explaining to me a conversation he'd had with one of his dear friends. He said, Dad, this is the most profound thing I think I've heard in the last couple of years. Named his friend, and he said, uh, he told me, you know, James, people who don't get it don't get it that they don't get it. I said, would you explain that to me? Dad, people who don't get it don't get it that they don't get it. Well, I'm fascinated by people who just don't get it, who don't grasp what is the appropriate behavior for the situation. We went to a movie recently, and you know you get, we counted 22 minutes of previews. And along with the 22 minutes of previews, they have announcements. It's like going to church when you go to a movie. And there were not one but two separate times when the the crawl ran and they said please don't make noise during the movie have respect for other people and the other people paying customers in the theater and then came another one a couple of minutes later still part of the previews please don't make noise people have paid to see this well of course you know what happened during the movie there were people who still talk loudly and and you could watch the people in the theater giving them first of all the half turn and then the whole turn. And I thought, people who don't get it don't get it that they don't get it. But that's just one species. There are people who don't know what is the proper emotion to express. These are people who laugh at funerals and don't dance at weddings. One of the marks of the wise man, according to Proverbs, is the man who understands what is appropriate for each situation. In fact, that could be the definition for wisdom in Proverbs. What is appropriate in each situation? Thankfully, we're not left to our own devices to figure out what is appropriate. Over and over again, Scripture tells us, for example, when to mourn and when to rejoice. Today we'll see in our text, in Luke 15, and I hope you have your Bible open, today we will see our Lord rebuke men because they don't get it. Because on the occasion which should bring about delirious happiness on their part, they're scowling and complaining instead. We're engaged in an expository series examining 15 of our Lord's 40 parables. And just to remind you, parabolic teaching was a a classic Hebrew style of teaching. The rabbis were all schooled in it, but none of them ever taught like Jesus. We're told in Luke chapter 4, That all were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. About a third of our Lord's teaching was delivered in a parabolic style. And let me remind you what a parable is. A parable is an earthly phenomena designed to teach a spiritual truth. That's about as simple a definition as we can come up with. And so I, I want to encourage you to open your Bible to Luke 15, be very diligent to look at those first 10 verses that Pastor King read you your hearing just a moment ago, and see what the profound truth is, and ask yourself, do I get it? Do I rejoice at the proper time? Do I- These are the, the district officers who collected tolls and customs for the Roman government. And know oh, how the Roman government levied taxes. Let me just tell you about seven of the taxes that all Jews paid. First, there was the poll tax, which all men over the age of 14 and all women over the age of 12 had to pay for the reason of being alive and living on Roman ground. The second tax was the ground tax. Even the smallest boat into port. And sixth, of course, was sales taxes on buying and selling. And seventh was a cart tax for your vehicle. And oh, how the Jews chafed under all of these taxes. When a Jew in Israel collaborated with the Romans in this practice and worked for them, collecting taxes for them, that Jew became an outcast, a traitor, a turncoat. Oh, how Jewish tax collectors were despised they were so hated that the synagogue would not receive their offerings they were so loathed that their testimony was not acceptable in jewish courts then beneath the tax collectors were the class of people you can see them there in verse one and two the people simply called sinners also translated in other texts as outcasts open transgressors of the law People whose sins were notorious, such as thieves, drunkards, prostitutes. Sinners and tax collectors, these people named in verse 1, were people who never darkened the door of a local synagogue. They never went to the temple in Jerusalem for high holy days. Of course, Pharisees never dirtied their hands with contact with such folks. But we see Jesus dining with them. Jesus is sharing a meal with these people. Why are they coming to him? And this is where you need to begin to roll up your sleeves and say, Do I have the sort of personality where those who are the wretched and those who live at the fringes and beyond the fringes of society are drawn to me? The wretched were drawn to Jesus for several reasons. First of all, his earnestness. There was no affectation when Jesus spoke to them, but simple, plain honesty. Second, they were drawn to him because of his love and kindness for them. Unlike the the Pharisees who looked at them and sneered at them, he showed his compassion by his healing ministry and his kindness towards them. And third, they were coming to hear him. Look what we're told in verse 1. This in itself is astounding. We're told these two groups of people, the tax collectors and the sinners, the wretches of society, drew near to him, To hear him, they didn't merely come for the miracles as the Israelites did. They were teachable. This is astounding. Look at these groups of people and then look what's said of them in verse 1. These two wretched groups of people, tax collectors and sinners, they wanted to be taught. They wanted to receive the word from Jesus' mouth. And we're taught here that the humble, the lowly, hear and learn, the proud murmur and condemn. And then these people came to them, came to Jesus, because Jesus did something nobody else did. He preached hope to them. Oh, to the Pharisees and the self-righteous, Jesus said, Woe to them seven times in Matthew 23. But to the lowly, to the tax collectors and sinners, Jesus opened his arms and said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest to them Jesus said i came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance well the pharisees predictably they complain and they make a charge look at this charge in verse 2 immediately after we're told notice the key operative tone of voice and emotion they complained well of course they did that's what pharisees do they're always complaining And notice they make a charge. This man receives sinners and eats with them. A couple of important things to notice about this charge. It's been made before in Luke chapter 5 when we read scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples saying, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? So this was a repeated act that Jesus was doing. And it will, by the way, be made again in Luke chapter 19 when Jesus goes to Zacchaeus, the tax collector's house. And we read them, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. Now notice, well, Jesus doesn't refute the charge. He doesn't deny the charge. The charge was meant to degrade and demean him. But no more wonderful thing was ever said about the sinless Lord Jesus, that he dines with tax collectors and sinners. He will say in Luke chapter 19 that he came... For the very purpose of seeking and saving the lost. You have to understand this about Pharisees. And maybe I'm holding a mirror up to your face right now. The Pharisees were separatists and advocated a doctrine of salvation through segregation. And so Jesus' behavior that he would actually intermingle with the wicked was beyond scandalous to them. What is implied in their charge in verse 2, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What's implied is this. These people are not even worthy of our notice. They're beyond help and reformation. We've written them off. We don't believe in conversion. We don't believe that such people can be changed from the inside out. The Pharisees shunned the lost. But Jesus attracted the lost. Here's Jesus' chance to be straightened out. When the charge is made in verse 2, this man receives sinners and eats with them, does he say, oh, receiving sinners and eating with them? That's a problem, isn't it? I am sorry I've offended your separatist sensibilities. I will never have contact with sinners again if that's what offends you. Does he do that? No. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus preaches one long extended sermon with three parables or illustrations, and we will, God willing, examine it over the next three Sunday mornings. And we'll begin this morning with verses 1 through 10 of the first two of those parables. Now remember, keep this clearly in mind. When Jesus is responding to the charge in verse 2, all three of the parables are simply a response to that charge. And so notice the emphases of our Lord. Look carefully. The first emphasis is the emphasis of pursuing that which is lost. Look at verse 2, for example, or verse 4. The shepherd, notice the issue of pursuit. The shepherd goes after the lost sheep, finds it, snags it, brings it home. And then look at verse 8, the second parable, the same issue of pursuing what is lost. The woman searches for the lost coin in the dirt of her floor and finds it. And Jesus is, com- is communicating through both of these first two parables and illustrations his heart for the lost, his shepherd's compassion for lost souls, and the immense value he places on them. He tells men twice, in verse 4 and verse 8, that he is the pursuer. I don't know if you're familiar with Francis Thompson's famous haunting poem, The Hound of Heaven. Thompson was a 19th century British poet who became addicted to opium and tried to forget the marvelous Christian upbringing he'd had, but he couldn't escape the pursuits of Jesus. And in his magnificent epic poem, The Hound of Heaven, he writes of the sheer relentlessness of Jesus who keeps coming after him. Just as the shepherd didn't sit still wailing over his lost sheep, and the woman didn't write off the lost coin, so Jesus did not stay in heaven pitying lost sinners. He left the glory which he had with his father, and he humbled himself in the likeness of men. He came all the way down to a broken, fallen world to seek And pursue the lost and the dying men. He would not rest until he would made atonement for them and drawn them to himself. Notice the perseverance of the Savior. Look how Jesus teaches this twice. Look at verse 4. We hear that wonderful phrase. He goes after the one which is lost until he finds it. And again in verse 8 we read, If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? These are snapshots and vignettes of our Lord Jesus who will not quit until he finds his lost sheep. He will not be put off by the lost sheep's stubbornness and recalcitrance and even rejections. He will finally pick up the lost sheep, put it on his mighty shoulders, and carry it home. And where is the sheep then? Safe in the arms of Christ. Now let me press on and point out that his is a definite search. The shepherd goes after a particular sheep and nothing else. He has a specific sheep in mind. There may have been lots of lost sheep, but he's looking for that one. He doesn't just grab any old sheep to fill his flock. No, he's looking for a distinct lost sheep. Now I want you to notice something about these three parables. You'll see the first two today and the last one in the next two weeks. Jesus does not downplay lostness. He doesn't soft-pedal it. He emphasizes it. He's not afraid to say something or someone is lost. The sheep in verse 6, the coin in verse 9, the son in verse 24. And he's illustrating how a holy God truly sees our condition. In doing so, he's consistent with the thread of Scripture. Remember a a text like Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think of how the sheep and the coin are portrayed. You need to get a, a, a careful grasp because this is you and I. Notice how we're portrayed. The sheep is wandering in the wilderness. The coin is hidden in the dust, dirty, useless, increasingly tarnished and degraded. The sheep will keep on wandering further away, prey to any predatory beast. The coin can't even make a noise like a sheep. It's lifeless and inanimate. These are the pictures of lostness that Jesus draws. The scripture is clear to assert that lost is the description of how everyone comes into the world. Ephesians 2.3 says, that all of us are by nature children of wrath and we are just as we sing and come now found of every blessing we are prone to wander our instinct is to never come to the shepherd our instinct is always to stray but the glory of this parable is that Jesus the good shepherd comes and finds lost and straying sheep and as we know from John 10 he lays down his life for rebellious wandering sheep Just as the shepherd seeks one sheep, and the woman seeks one coin. So Jesus seeks individual people. Doesn't he make that clear in the saga of Zacchaeus? Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. Because you are a son of Abraham. The son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. The clear statement from this parable in Luke 15 is that if lost men are to be saved... It will be because of the saving initiative of a searching Savior. My friend, if you're in Christ today, it's because he came and found you. I want you to notice something else very important that runs through all three of these parables that Jesus tells in response. Now, I want you to notice again the the attitude, the temperature of the room as Jesus makes this response. Look carefully at verse 2. Here's the, the temperature in the room. It's one of complaint. And what Jesus responds with is he rebukes not just the substance of the complaint, but the fact of the grumpiness of the complaint. First of all, he, the issue of joy is all through this. And joy is something the Pharisees lack. You'll notice the Pharisees respond to men showing a spiritual interest in Jesus the Savior. They complain. In fact, I'll tell you that if you scour the New Testament, you will never find the Pharisees rejoicing. That's profound. You'll never find Pharisees rejoicing. Their religion is a sour one. For this and a hundred other reasons, I want no part of a grumpy religion. I want a gospel that produces joy. When people have come and walked in the door and said, "What, what are you guys at Woodruff Road about? I'll tell them, Calvinism with a smile. That's who we are. Our religion brings joy, and if yours doesn't, you've misunderstood the gospel. Now, I want you to notice who it is who rejoices. Jesus is commanding an attitude and an action whenever lost ones are found. This is a not-so-subtle rebuke to the the sour Pharisees who are not rejoicing that men are coming to Jesus. Jesus tells them, and I have to warn you, this is a trigger warning. hope your seatbelt is on. Look carefully at verse 7. Jesus tells them that the inhabitants of heaven celebrate when lost men are found and brought to saving faith. This is altogether consistent with the rest of the Bible's teaching. Jesus has joy over his saving work. Aren't we told in Hebrews 12 that Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame for the joy that was set before him? Having endured the agony, his joy is to see lost sinners brought out of death unto life. No one enjoys the salvation of a sinner more than Jesus does. Look at the picture of him in verse 5. Look carefully. This is our Jesus. When he's found it, that is the lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. Jesus, the, the good shepherd, is not grumbling over what he's had to suffer. He's... Happy over finding lost sheep. We are not saved by a begrudging, grumpy Redeemer. Our Sovereign Lord, of course, this is in keeping with all His works, He takes pleasure in all the works of His hands, whether it be controlling subatomic particles or managing the rise and fall of nations or overseeing the orbit of planets. But He takes special delight in the salvation of a sinner, the redemption of the lost, are the happiest days of heaven. The prophet Zephaniah in Zephaniah 3 tells us this, The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now notice who joins into this rejoicing. Look carefully at verse 10. Jesus says after the second finding, the finding of the lost coin, Jesus says, I say to you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why do the angels rejoice? They rejoice because they know what that poor sinner has escaped. They remember the day when Jehovah banished rebellious angels and their leader Lucifer to damnation. They know what the sufferings of the damned are. They have heard their cries. They rejoice because they know what the joys of heaven are. They know of the mansions prepared for the elect. They know of the pure bliss of holiness forever. Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that myriads of angels, and indeed the persons of the Godhead, are absolutely delirious over the salvation of one person. Maybe it's a child at our Good News Club at Oak View Elementary. Perhaps it's one woman who hears the gospel over her car radio and is brought to faith and repentance. But in this context, it was One tax collector, one sinner. Perhaps this morning your view of God is a scowling God who's unmoved. But that is not the God of Jesus' description. This is the celebratory God. And when he rejoices, all the angels join in. Joy is the serious business of heaven. And why this heavenly rejoicing? This is where you really need to to grasp and to get it. They are rejoicing, we are told twice, whenever a sinner repents and turns from sin. The angels rejoice when sinners repent because bringing them to repentance is the work of God. God rejoices when sinners repent because it affords him an opportunity to exercise his mercy by pardoning them for Christ's sake. Notice that Jesus stresses repentance. Look carefully at the text. Verse 7. We're told... I say to you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And again in verse, seven, in verse 10, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In doing so, in stressing repentance, Jesus is far different than many contemporary evangelicals who seem embarrassed to bring up the issue of repentance. What does Jesus mean by repentance? I want to be oh so clear right now. Jesus is saying that you Pharisees, you're not rejoicing, and you're not rejoicing over repentance. What does he mean by repentance? Repentance is that, that act that begins with, it begins, it doesn't stay there, with the knowledge of sin. The sinner sees his words and deeds and thoughts for what they are as sin. They stop renaming it. And then repentance moves on to naming the sin. Not just a glib, uh, forgive us of our many sins, amen. But repentance comes face to face with the transgression and names it. It does what Paul does in First Timothy 1 when he says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Sin names the sin and says, I'm a gossip. I'm a thief. I'm a porn addict. I'm a liar. I'm a hater. And then repentance works sorrow for sin. It produces that broken spirit and heart that David writes about in Psalm 51. And then repentance goes on beyond that. It moves from a knowledge of sin to naming the sin to sorrow for sin to a turning from sin. It's usually the Greek word metanoia. that means to turn away from sin and to run in the opposite direction towards holiness. To mortify the sin and to put on righteousness. And then finally, repentance shows itself in a break with sin forsaking the sin. This is what Proverbs 28 is speaking about when it says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Think how often repentance is pushed to the front of the scriptures. Repentance was the first message of Jesus when he began his public ministry. We're told in Mark chapter 1, on the the very beginning of Mark's gospel, that Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Or in Luke 24, in Luke's version of the Great Commission, when Jesus said, it is written, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. On the day of Pentecost, what was it that Peter cried out? Repent and be converted. When Paul preached to the intellectuals in Athens at the Areopagus, what was his sermon? God now commands all men everywhere to repent. We must see this clear link. And if you've never made this link before, let me help you to get it. We have to make this link between repentance and rejoicing. Any time a person turns from sin, the proper response on the part of the, gla- of the godly is to rejoice. That's the right emotion. Let me make several applications of this text. Next week and the following week, we'll be digging in deeper as Jesus really focuses on the prodigal son and the re- rejoicing over his repentance. But several applications from these first ten verses. Two groups of people <coughs> always brought out our Lord's strongest words and actions. Publicans and sinners, on one hand, always evoked His tenderness and His compassion and mercy. Whenever we see them coming to Jesus, we see Jesus joyfully receiving them and ministering to them. But there was a second group who evoked an even greater and stronger response. The Pharisees inscribed... Scribes always evoked his words of woe. Jesus could not stomach their self-righteousness, their joylessness. He never stayed in their company long. Nothing has changed today. Jesus and the holy angels rejoice over men who see themselves as lawbreakers and needy sinners and then repent. But they take no joy over self-righteous men. A second application, I would have you see the connectedness of earth and heaven. The angels are watching. Isn't that what Jesus says? The angels are watching and studying. My friends, they are watching now, waiting for an opportunity to rejoice and celebrate. And the point that Jesus is teaching us is we don't live in a closed universe. Francis Schaeffer used to call it the three-story universe. Heaven above, hell below, and all tightly connected and intertwined. A third application. We must, as a congregation, maintain a corporate perspective on what gives us happiness. It's not lovely buildings or large budgets. It's seeing that the Lord Jesus Christ saves sinners in our midst. That must be a great delight for us. If we ever grow weary of seeing Christ save men and women and boys and girls, God have mercy on us. For then we've sunk into wretched Phariseeism. Notice well what Jesus does. Look at verse 6 and verse 9. Jesus calls others to rejoice with Him. In verse 6, He calls the friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I found the sheep that's been lost. And again in verse 9, calls friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which was lost. It's always right when someone comes to Saving Faith for you to say, Carl, did you hear about this woman? Let's rejoice together. Let's delight in the Lord's saving work. A fourth application. You must maintain a right perspective on where your personal happiness comes from. What gives you joy? Is it when your team wins? When you get a raise? Then, my friend, you're only like the world. Those same things give them temporal and carnal happiness. Your greatest joy, if you're in Christ, must come from seeing your children, your co-workers, family members repent and come to saving faith. A fifth application. I want you to see Christ's love for sinners. I want you to put the drop the magnifying glass down on this now because these ten verses, Jesus is shouting as loud as he can of his love for sinners. These people, you see them there in verse 1 and 2. These are not churchy people. These are straight up degenerates making no pretense of a godly life. Do you ever put yourself around folks like this with the intention of making inroads for the gospel? Or are you more like the Pharisees looking down your nose at people like this? Your Lord had such a deep love for sinners that he would go to them. Isn't that the central truth of the Incarnation, that Christ came to us? Think how often we see the Lord Jesus seeking out really rotten people. The Samaritan woman in John 4, married five times and now living with a man. Zacchaeus, a a thief masquerading as a tax collector. The immoral woman in Luke 7 who uh, anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and dried them with her hair. So let me close the circle for you. Maybe you're thinking, well, it's okay for Jesus to go for that sort of people, but not for me. Let me ask you, are you a disciple of Christ? He took his disciples into those settings. If you are a disciple, you will happily go to the unlovely and the outcast. The Christian life is not one of assimilation to be like the world or isolation. The Christian life is one of mission. A sixth application. Hear me carefully. Jesus does not justify or condone the lifestyles of wicked men. He regards them as the sick who need to be healed, the lost who need to be found. He comes from heaven to deliver these people from their sins and miseries. He came to call them to repentance. A seventh application. I'm always amazed at how When people talk about heaven and usually it's about Uncle Bob or Grandma, they don't get it. They talk about Uncle Bob playing golf and Aunt Betty is sewing or knitting or whatever it is that gave her joy. Instead of focusing on this, one of the clearest truths we have about heaven is this. It is a joy-filled community. The streets of heaven resound with laughter and dancing. If you are grumpy, suspicious, sour, and critical now, you resemble the Pharisees who didn't inherit the kingdom, and my friend, you'll be out of place in heaven. A final application. If you're here today and you see yourself as a bankrupt sinner, one who has offended a holy God, I have good news for you. Jesus, the Savior, receives sinners. He will not turn you away like a Pharisee would. In John 6, he said, The one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. There has never been a sinner, sinner repenting of sin, who came to Jesus and was not received. He will welcome you today. Let's pray together. Our Father, have mercy upon us. Like the Pharisees, we have often complained. We too have been joyful over the trivial, but not rejoiced in the mighty, gracious work of seeing sinners saved. But by this word, change us into men and women who have joy at the saving work of Christ, who rejoice in seeing men and women repent. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.